0: Hello. Hello. That's a type of meat. Hello, kosher. Kosher. Uh, uh, Hebrew National. Those are those are uh, hot dogs.
1: They are, they are not pork.
0: I don't know. I don't think all so. All I beef. they're, they're I think, all beef. Yeah. I'm I
1: think. sure they they got to be all beef, Ben.
0: Awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right. I don't. I don't know. Much. I. You know, Don. I don't know a whole lot about things, about stuff and things. Yep. Um, so I think you were. stuff. I think you were ringing for a while and uh, had you on mute huh yeah so so there don't don't take it uh personal because i had everybody on mute but take this part personal i was really only expecting a call from one other per from one person not one other person <laughs> just from you is this that other podcast that you do <sighs> there's no other podcast i did one for like three two episodes how'd that work out um i did one for two episodes <laughs> i think it worked out about that i i'm gonna try it again though now that we have our stuff figured out. Uh, we have our stuff figured out? Yeah, we got our stuff figured out. We got our things right. figured out. We got stuff figured out. We got uh um our doohickeys, our whatchamacallits, our, our talk machine, our old timey oh, talk machine. My old timey talk machine. I actually I can
1: hear I can hear the sparking in the background.
0: Oh that's a train. That's a different that's a different <laughs> machine. <laughs> or or it's maybe that's a um, like a wind clicker. I, I you made, know, what people say? People say they love the ones where we try to do sound effects. Uh, they do. I made a coffee in my office, in my in my office on campus today. Uh huh. With this old timey machi- coffee machine. <laughs> uh huh. That is called a, It's a Tassimo. Uh huh. It's not a Keurig. Um, uh-huh. And Tassimo, there's no way that Tassimo uh, sponsors the podcast. If anybody was thinking this was pro- product placement, because Tassimo almost does not exist in the United States but it's like a big deal in Canada. Anyway, I have one at home which I never use cuz I have an espresso. Mm-hmm. And then I have this other one. I've got one of these at home, one of my in my office, and I, I this is the first coffee I've made in my office in a year plus. And I turned it on and it sounded like an old-timey talk machine when I when I made the coffee. It definitely sounded like so so there you go. But how is the coffee then? That's what people really want to know. It's not good. it's not good it's but you know what it's better than than conference coffee you you know what i'm talking about right like or Uh or meeting coffee where someone is
1: Uh, conference coffee is the worst
0: uh, the coffee that they have in big urns that someone has made like that uh that has the name bun on it nothing against the bun coffee machine people but they don't make very people that use them don't make very good coffee Mm. um and uh, so it's better than that but it's not i mean it's not it's Better than nothing, but not ideal.
1: And and better than like just yeah, like like a drip uh, a drip bun machine.
0: It's it's probably not better than that. I just mm. don't have one of those. All mm. I have is this.
1: Well. Well, I, I have an Aeropress, which I think we've talked about before, of course, of course and you do. I, I just got a, um, a, not just got, but I think we've talked about, it. I got a burr grinder, Yes. Uh, so I freshly grind my own, I don't, I don't not, I'm not to the point of roasting my own beans, because that's a little crazy, uh, but I do, I buy my beans pre-roasted from Starbucks, and then grind them in my grinder, and make it with the Aeropress, and it's a pretty good cup of coffee i've got I've got a whole thing. i I you know, get the amount of the coffee set, and it's uh, I mix. I make a, like sort of it's not quite an espresso grind. because um, if you have an espresso grind and you try to press that through the Aeropress, it, uh, it does not press easily. Mm. Um, and, and it runs the risk, I think, of shattering the coffee cup or flying off the counter. <laughs> so, um, so I, I have like, it's like two, it, it, it two notches, uh, it, goes to a, it goes to, it goes to, doesn't go to 11, Ben. It goes to eight. Um, <laughs> turn it up to eight. Turn, I turn it, I turn it down to eight. Oh um, it's any go- lower, any lower than eight, and it's just not gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's it's a, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So I turn it down to eight. Um, and, uh, and then it makes a pretty good, uh, pretty good cup of coffee. I mix it uh, 50-50 with milk a little. So it's a oh. very, it's, it's an espresso, it's an espresso it's a, strength, with uh, a lot, but not quite a an espresso grind. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, but nothing, nothing is whipped. Uh Nothing is foamed. So I guess, yeah, I guess it would be a latte. Yeah, it would be, yeah. Well, in fact, I call it in my, uh in my calorie tracking app, I call it Don's Latte. Oh,
0: excellent. Don's Latte. It's got its own special it's name. It's got its
1: own name. Yeah.
0: When you, so, I mean, when you said that it, nothing is whipped, is anything nay-nayed? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Do you know what that reference? Do you know what that means? <laughs> well, I there's do you know somebody whip Nene. I, there's
1: <laughs> there's somebody named Nene from The Wire. That's the only thing. Oh, I know.
0: It's, no, it's totally not that. Oh, that's,
1: I mean, maybe that's, that's WeeBay. I don't know.
0: That's WeeBay. We yeah but, no not not Wee-bay. This is Nene. This is uh, this is a dance that that my kids know. Um, it's like like the Hokey Pokey um and i will uh send you something well i'm going to send you a video to watch just not right now it's from someone called uh silento okay and, and uh it is this this is this is an old reference this is like a 2000 like an early 2015 thing that that took over the uh the world and it's called watch me whip nene Nay Nay. and my kids uh they're all about it also okay. um i didn't complete this but you and i had a really nice text conversation about things that we were doing well, me cranking up my um, my old talk, old talk machine, my, uh-huh. which is my new term for Skype, and there's another uh, there's another thing called uh, crank crank that from uh, Soldier Boy. Uh, so, so there's th- this is the, the, I I know I'm talking crazy right now and and, and yes and we've just said goodbye to Jack Isage <laughs> because he's he's fa- he's either fast forwarded or he's said I'm gonna go to a different episode. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll link to uh, "Whip Nae and "Crank That Soldier Boy," um, which are popular songs with uh, seven and five-year-olds. Okay, well there you go. You um, know what? You know what else is popular with oh. uh, with young boys? I- i do I, I, I what tell me what a dog a dog that's right a princess puppy? pickles they they call him president pickles he's, <laughs> he's very he's very formal he's been he's an elected official <laughs> i'm going with princess princess pickles is also good <laughs> so much better <laughs> uh, president princess pickles as he's known really just to don and i uh his his uh a semi-official name Uh, is, is Lord Stanley or, or Stanley or Stan, as Sam has shortened it to. Uh, and we have a little puppy who's eight weeks old and a Basset Hound and he's, he's mahogany in color. That's what, uh, that's the the official, I don't, I don't know what term that, I don't know what that color is other than that's the color of my dog. He's not lemon, which is Uh another color of Basset Hound. Huh? He is mahogany. He's mahogany. Brindle. Brindle is what my dog is. Oh, that's nice. We had uh are you sure he's not uh, Berber? That- uh he could be he could be Berber Bur- that's oh, a plaid.
1: That is a plaid. Is he yeah? Um, hey, so you know how I spent uh, my my you know what <laughs> what what I do when I wake up in the morning is first thing I do is I, I turn off my sleep app and I, I look at my sleep score and then the next thing I do as I'm laying in bed is I check the social media yes and uh, and then and then usually that takes me someplace and where it took me um, this morning was reading about Frederick Stanley the 16th Earl of Derby oh and Frederick, be, yes, be, because because um, Frederick Stanley is also known as Lord Stanley, which is also not the right name for your dog, but what you're choosing to call him anyway, um, and uh, and yeah, and. Um, Mickey Parrish uh, noted um, uh, on on uh, Facebook uh, the name why you were calling your dog the name that you were calling him. And uh, and that led me to like oh, – and Who's I knew this? I sort yeah. of knew this. But then I did some deep dives, as they say, on Wikipedia. And, uh, yeah, so the Right Honorable Earl of Derby, uh K G G C He's got them all. Who was the sixth, sixth governor general of Canada. He was a – a Brit, as they say, he served under Queen Victoria. But most importantly, for uh, everyone who listens to uh, this show, uh, he is the guy who the Stanley Cup is named for.
0: Right, the oldest the... and most prestigious—that's uh, not subjective. Uh, the oldest mm-hmm. part is, is is definitely not subjective. The most prestigious, but uh, trophy in all of uh, sports in the world in the universe in Canada in the wor- in, <laughs> in all of in all of the world and the universe. Uh, but mostly Canada, but yeah. pretty much, pretty much Canada. He's the, uh, um, yeah. So he's got uh, he's got all the best uh, um, uh, letters: KG, CGBC, GCVO, PC. Which which I, did you click on those? He's not DQE. No, he's not. He's got the Order of the Garter. He's got the Order of the Bath. That's what GCB is. He's got the Royal Victorian Order, and uh, Privy Council of the United Kingdom.
1: And that's what, and that was after I read about Frederick Stanley, the sixteenth Earl of Derby. The next thing I did was to click on what each of those little <laughs> things meant, and I got to see all. Of, I so I knew all of that. Look I mean, at you. At least I read it earlier this morning on Wikipedia.
0: Look at you. Yeah. So so our our little Basset Hound is uh, is Lord Stanley, named after Lord Stanley Stanley's Cup, uh, which will be awarded uh, in in about two months. Um. And and of course, so we you know we'd gone back and forth about names to call our dog. Went through all of the usual suspects. Um, trooper, um, Rider, um, Brett Michaels, uh, Ace, Ace of Base, Ace of Base. <laughs> we, we went through all of the right, all of the best. He's games. a Basset Hound. He's a Basset Hound. It's Ace true. of Base would be perfect. It would be. It would be. Do you know the Basset Hound's French? I didn't know that until well, yesterday. We oui, we oui. yeah. So I'm it's sure. um, the Basset Hound. We we received a binder from our uh, from our breeder about the Basset Hound, and it was one of. Uh, six recognized basset breeds in in France wow, yeah, it's a scent hound that was originally again uh directly from Wikipedia originally bred for the purpose of hunting hare. Uh, their sense of smell for tracking is second only to that of the bloodhound. We have the second best wow. nose in the hounds. Wow, I know look at that um, and he's a cute little little pup uh, who uh, i've never I've never had a puppy before. Uh, we, we had an older, an older dog who, who was somewhere in between the ages of two and seven undetermined, uh, but not, not a puppy and, and kind of an old dog. And her name was Jewel and she was a a black and tan, black and tan coon hound. Uh, and then, uh, she got old and, um, had a lot of, a lot of health problems. Uh, so she was, she passed away before, um, my L, a youngest son Sam was born, but uh, but we had her as a as like a mature dog. Like she was, she she had all the all the bad habits from someone else.
1: I uh, think I met her when I visited you in uh, Canada that you day. Did that you time?
0: Did. Yeah. yeah, you and I took her for a walk. That's right. That's right. We walked around my my neighborhood. It's it's true. She was um, very uh, very neurotic. She would not walk on hardwood floors, and it wasn't mm-hmm. because of the length mm-hmm. of her nails, which we kept mm-hmm. very short. Uh, but uh, we had to have all these runners through our house, and not not uh, not marathon runners, um, but uh, carpet runners. <laughs> From those of you who watch uh, Home and Garden TV, you'll know what I mean. Um, and uh, and yeah, so we so she was she was very much my dog, and uh, it was hard to not have a dog for a long time. And now we have another dog again, and it's a puppy. And we had to like we were learning things like crate training and mm-hmm. what puppies are like. And this, this puppy, uh, Stanley is, is just eight weeks old. So he's just a little, he's just a little baby. So he slept, um, and sleeps, uh, somewhere around, uh, 20, 20 plus hours a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we, uh, we picked him up yesterday in the fine, uh, town of Asheville, North Carolina, the fine city of Asheville, North, North Carolina, which is one of my favorite places in our state to visit. And, uh, Took him in the car. He was cold. He fell asleep and slept um, probably ninety uh, percent of the four-hour drive uh, from Asheville back to Raleigh, which which made it great. And he didn't get sick, and he he was yeah he was he was good. And then last night he got up a few times um, and whined and, and made a, a howl uh, type noise. And we took him out to the to go to the bathroom, and he did his stuff outside. Um, and no messes. Uh, in the house, and I think we have the world's smartest dog so far.
1: That's good. That's good. Um, and you know, uh, Ben, uh, the the uh, the name Bassett is derived from the French word uh, bass, meaning low. Okay. So I, I personally, I, I you know, I, I would redouble my efforts uh, to guess you that Ace of Base is really the uh, the appropriate uh, the appropriate uh, name. Is uh, <laughs> that her, Princess Pickles?
0: Princess Pickles or the Ace of Spades? ace of spades also good also good uh coming back to uh, episode <coughs> 93 when we talked about lemmy um yeah so uh so we got this dog and it's uh it's it's pretty great danny my wife is uh was so nervous about getting this dog like she two nights before we um we got uh we got stanley um she could not sleep mainly because she was concerned that the boys wouldn't wouldn't like him like, like she, it was not a rat. It was not rational, mm. but, uh, she's like, I'm really nervous. Like what if they, they want a dog, but they don't really want a dog. And, and now we have this dog. Cause it's not like you can, you know, give the dog back, but they, well you,
1: you can, but can. that's, that's not a good, we're thing not going to gonna do that.
0: No. We can do that. Right. right. Okay. Well, this, this dog is, it's my dog. Yep. Uh, cool. So yeah, we're, we're like, we're like pumped about it. Um, and, uh, turns out, uh, he's going to weigh, um, somewhere in between 55 and 75 pounds. Wow. Uh, Yeah. That's as much as Gibbs weighs. He's, it's going to be, but he's not going to be any uh, taller than, um, he is now. Yeah. Really like 15 inches, but he's going to be long. Wow. uh, And is, and, and and broad, apparently. Very broad. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So we're, I mean, we're, we're, I'm all in. I'm in love with this dog sounds good cool yeah so base ace of base uh prince pickles uh president pickles princess pickles princess Pickles, princess pickles.
1: <laughs> you, need to, you need to dress them yeah. in pink
0: or stanley steamer
1: stanley <laughs> steamer which, which is also very good yes
0: uh, good job good job anyway it was uh yes yeah, so we've had a very happy uh happy couple of days um and, and we got you know i mentioned we went to uh, Asheville. we stayed at um this like famous place the grove park inn which is mm. like an expensive place to stay at, except when you have Expedia points, ah. and uh, and they like double or triple them or whatever it was. It was not it was not expensive, but it was like super cool. It's like this old, like re- mountain resort that was built in the nineteen teens mm-hmm. to for people to recover from tuberculosis at. Cool. Yeah, so there's. I don't think we came back with any of the TB. Mm. But, uh, yeah, the boys, boys really loved it. We loved it. Uh, had, a good, had a good time. Visited the Sierra Nevada Brewery in mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mills River or Fletcher, North Carolina. And, yeah, had a really nice uh, nice, nice, little, nice little time, nice little weekend away. That's uh, good. Yeah. Hey, so I'm drinking out of a cup, as, as you and I do. On the, mm-hmm. And you have, like, a fancy cup. I know. Mm, I don't know about fancy, but. Fancy-ish?
1: It's, it's blue
0: um so my ceramic ceramic and blue that's fancy it's not one of your like uh air press yeti you have like a special like travel mug don't you
1: uh, you know, I uh, I have I have since uh, changed up my travel mug thing um, because those <clears throat> those travel mugs I was using are very hard to clean, even with the new design. Ah. And so, um, so when I'm at home, uh, I have a, a blue dance mug, or we also have white dance mugs that are uh, they are uh, the uh, the Portugal style um, <laughs> of dance mug. I'm reading from the bottom; it's now empty. Um, but then my travel mug has become – I don't know if you've seen these. Um, this podcast is not sponsored by Starbucks, but but the Starbucks is selling Fueled a – Fueled by Starbucks,
0: I would say. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, is uh, selling this uh, not really disposable uh, mug, but it's a reusable plastic mug yeah. for like two bucks. Yeah, right. And so, and you save ten cents each time uh, you use a reusable mug. And so, I figure after twenty times, uh, I've, I'm ahead of the game uh, financially. <laughs> it's dishwasher safe, and uh, and it just completely disassembles, and it looks just like a regular Starbucks cup, like a like a, a, a Grande Starbucks cup. And it's and it's and I've got two of them now. And so, I really that's that's what I'm I, I'm rocking uh, in the travel mug department.
0: It's in high rotation. I also use a uh, a Starbucks uh, ceramic travel mug. Mm-hmm. And a very specific one um, that, because I also have trouble with cleaning things that have plastic lids and different things. So I have this, uh, I have two of them, a black one and one that looks like a grande cup um, that have three parts, two, like a ceramic base, a ceramic lid with a rubber little stopper around it.
1: Oh, uh, I've seen those. Yeah. Nice. I, lo- I very love nice. it. Yep. I
0: love it. Love it. Love it. Except over time, the rubber piece kind of expands a little bit. Um, makes the lid a little shifty, but uh, but anyway, it I like it because it never tastes like coffee, like mm-hmm. I mean, right. Know, the, that thing. It, ne- it never tastes like stale coffee. Stale it's coffee. always yeah. yeah. You
1: can get it completely, uh, relatively uh, speaking, completely clean. Right, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No.
0: So anyway, why I'm telling you this is because mm-hmm. we we did record a podcast on uh, March 29th. That was the last mm-hmm. uh, episode we recorded. But something happened on uh, March 22nd um, that I don't think we talked about. But my my former. The mayor of my former city, who had made an appearance on our uh, podcast in, in name, Rob Ford. Mm. Oh yes, passed, passed away, and oh, I'm yes. I'm drinking out of a cup right now that has his picture on it, and it oh. says "Recall this Ford," because nice. yeah, which is a good little play because Ford the company recalled some you know cars, and then you can recall a politician. Blah blah blah. Anyway, um, that that one of my. Uh, one of my coworkers, two of my coworkers, uh, Jerry Bichelle and uh, and Sarah, Sarah Kirby, who you know from the internet, gave mm-hmm. me because we they love Rob Ford as much as I did, and and I'm not saying that in a in a Donald Trump kind of way. I mean, it, in in like I really like this guy. So he, but he was he's was not like maybe the nicest person, but he gave a lot of entertainment value. So anyway, it says recall this Ford. So that's what I'm drinking out of today. Kind of oh, a, tr- a tribute, nice. a, a tribute to the man. Oh. Very nice. Very
1: nice. Hey, so while you were um, uh, off gallivanting and, and puppying, yes. um, I was giving a talk uh, to the New Jersey Grange.
0: Ooh, right, yes.
1: So um, <clears throat> I, I, and it went pretty well. I I, I kind of rolled uh, Merlin style, no slides, although I did make a really cool um, um, uh, mind map uh, with all the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, and so I talked about, uh, the, the, the consumer demand for things that are preservative-free, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, blah, 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 uh, natural and processed. And then uh, from that segued into antibiotic resistance, uh, a little bit about uh, GMOs. A little thing, a little bit about hormones and what it means for something to be hormone-free uh, versus you know hormones used in in animal production, agri- animal agriculture production, um, and then uh, you know so I went through this long litany of, of of all of these things, and then I concluded at the end with talking about Chipotle uh, because Chipotle was uh, antibiotic-free, GMO-free, hormone-free, and they made people sick. So uh, and I think it really went well. The 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 as I predicted, uh, Kristen said, "Who's the who's the New Jersey Grange? And I said, well, mostly it's a bunch of old farmers, yeah. <laughs> retired farmers. And that's what it was. Um, but it was, it went, the talk went really, uh, really well, I thought. And uh, I had uh, met, met a, uh, made a new friend, the guy that runs, the, so we, we were, uh, the, the meeting was at a place called Howell Farm, which is not anywhere near Howell, New Jersey, but it's, it is in, um, it's very close to the, uh, the state line, close to Pennsylvania. Um, in a town whose name I'm forgetting, um, but a uh, very memorable Thurston. Um, Thurston Howell? No, not Thurston How the Third. But uh, really nice. Uh, uh, really nice uh, working style farm, and made friends with the director of the farm, who who gave me uh, real coffee because all they had at the uh, at this event was uh, was uh, decaf coffee, Ugh. and so we, had, we bonded over uh, real coffee. Um, and then at the end, he gave me some eggs because they have chickens on the farm and they they produce way more eggs uh, uh, way more eggs than, uh, than than they can give away. And so he gave me a, a dozen eggs, um, not washed, um, with a, perhaps a little some feathers and some chicken poop. Um, so I immediately got on Facebook and. Asked our, our friend, uh, Michelle J. Russell, um, so you have chickens. What do you do about the poop on your chicken eggs from your backyard chickens? And she had some good advice about a product that I could order from the internet, which I didn't, um, because I mean, <laughs> I'm not gonna wait for something to come from the internet, yeah, I need clean to my safe. eggs. I'm eating my so, eggs. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, so the, we, I think there was one that was cracked and we fed that one to the dog and there's some that have a, a lot of poop on them and we haven't really touched those yet, not a lot. Uh, 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 they, have, they have some unidentified matter. Uh, on the outside of the egg, very small amount. But I've been using the clean ones first, so.
0: Some okay, good. That that sounds good. So. And cooking them. And Thank cooking you. them. So I mean, that's that, that's the risk management. And step, and right? washing my hands
1: right yeah. after handling
0: the eggs. The, but that, I mean, that's that's the true risk management step, right? Yes, like, exactly. You know, the the hand washing and not cross contaminating is is important. But I mean, you're gonna you're gonna cook the the eggs. Exactly. Exactly, and they're very tasty. I'm, I I imagine they're very tasty. Are they tastier? Than your yeah. normal, than the eggs that you would normally eat.
1: You know they're eggs, man. They
0: really, eggs are really eggs.
1: Like much, much of like anything except faintly of eggs. eggs so egg. yeah, no, they're they're you know they look a little different. I think that they are fresher. So they, uh, uh, you know, how you measure. Uh, I, I, I do you have you you your is your any of your degrees in food science?
0: No, no, I don't. I just I, I just pretend. I got. Did you? Uh, are you familiar with the the ha unit? I am familiar with the high Unit. I can oh, we talk, talk we've talked about this on the podcast before. I can talk a good food safety game, or a food science game like I can I, I you can talk me through this tell me about the ha unit
1: well the ha unit ben is uh something that is you, you use to uh measure the freshness of eggs and basically it 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 corresponds to the height of the egg and like when you when you crack an egg you, there's there's the yolk and there's the white but even in the white part there's sort of a part of the white that spreads out more and there's a part of the white that doesn't spread out as much and in fresher eggs that that part is uh is, um, uh, that part is, is higher. It retains its integrity more. Um, and so uh, it is a measure of egg quality. And so I have noticed that these uh, farm, farm fresh eggs um, uh, actually do have a, the, 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 the white sits higher in the, the – the, 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 uh, the part of the white sits higher in the pan. So I think they are fresher than, let's say, what we would get from the store.
0: What, so could you tell me what your um, – was it above a value of 72 well, Ben, I would say yes. Okay. Not knowing what that looks like, uh, I would say yes. So uh, let me give you a quick calculation, uh, <laughs> Mr. Food Science. Uh, <clears throat> the, the high the high unit is one hundred times the log of the height of the albumin in millimeters minus uh, one point seven times the weight of the egg in grams that is uh, to the power of 0.37 plus uh, 7.6. Yeah. Then then you log that that whole thing, and then times it by 100. And uh, And more than 72 gives you an A. Or, sorry, uh, a double A, double A
1: uh,
0: mm. egg. And once you get down into the, I mean, into the 30 or less, you're looking at a C egg. And you don't – I mean, a C egg, that's what you – that's make an om- That's not what you make an omelette with. That's what you put uh, your feet to the dog, Ben. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. I might uh, I might make a quiche with that. Uh huh. Because I, mean, I mean, my ha my ha units. Um, I don't. I my quiche never has a ha unit have eggs of a ha unit less than seventy two. I can and and apparently uh, the ha unit is pronounced how. So uh, anyway, how h a u g h how. Maybe in in your uh, in your neck of the woods maybe on my in, internet. Maybe in in the Jer- in Jersey. That's how you say it. In Canada, there are three extra U's in it, and it's uh, <laughs> and it's pronounced l- low because <laughs> because there's an L before uh, the H with an apostrophe, and uh, it's a low unit. So loaf, uh, loaf. It's a loaf. It's a loaf. Uh, yeah. There you go. Well, good, good. I'm glad you got some eggs uh, from the Grange. Um, I I did I did, uh, I
1: and it was and actually it was it was turned out to be a it was a it was a really windy day in New Jersey uh, that day but it was very clear and it was a nice drive um uh, and and so uh, to uh, I want to say hope well hope well i don't know anyway a place in new jersey is very nice um uh, not too far from uh trenton as they say um <laughs> and uh it was uh it was a really nice drive it was just beautiful farm new jersey farmland almost to pennsylvania um and it was just a nice day and nice folks good coffee good eggs uh good 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 talk um yeah so it was it was a, it was a good it was a good day i enjoyed myself
0: good good did you go to any uh i, I know kristen was thinking that you guys might go like uh, flea marketing or antiquing or yeah She said,
1: "Was she said, was you know, I'm stressing out because we're gonna go on this uh, trip Ah, because we we were supposed to go on a trip that you didn't go on. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right, right. And and she was like, well, I got to clean the house and I got to get ready for the trip, and so she ended up not going antiquing. So I just drove myself.
0: Oh, well, that was that was nice. That was I mean a nice uh, little uh, little uh, solo uh, tour of the Garden State. Exactly. We're we're gonna go on tour, you and me.
1: We are. We 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 talked about this." We are after our hundredth episode. We're going to retire. We're not going to do any more podcasts. But we are going to go and do living room shows for Lip- people. Yeah, we're going to. that be the only way that you can hear us would be would be to have us come to your living room because we are going to stop after a hundred episodes. We're we're stopping the.
0: We're podcast. only going in living in living rooms <laughs> exactly, um, and uh, that would that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Like uh- a. <laughs> Like, like that would be the only way to. Like, you will not be able to email us, or we, we're going to retire from social media. If right. you want, you can send us a letter. You can send us a letter. You could or a telegram, or uh, Morse code us. Uh, but we, all Great. of our references will be now uh, only to old time radio shows. No longer will Don be able to talk about Acorn TV. Uh, and uh, well, speaking, I have an update on Andy ah! But first, but first, uh, the
1: Howell Living History Farm. We will link to it in show notes. Is in Lambertville, New Jersey. Oh, nice. Uh, which is across the street, uh, across the street, across the Delaware River from uh, New Hope, uh, Pennsylvania. So, anyway, Lambertville, New Jersey, lovely part of the state, highly recommended. Uh,
0: North so Trenton. North Trenton, Trenton. Uh, Trenton. Not, not to be confused with uh, Trenton, Ontario. Uh, right, Trentune, Trentoon. Trentoon Trent, yeah, Trentune, Uh which is from uh, the Star Wars universe. Um, I, <laughs> I think you're thinking of Star Trek. I live, live long in uh, Grange. Um, so yeah, so you did that, and then you, you just referenced another trip that I did not make that you made mm. uh, to to uh, to Florida, and well, and, and right? I heard I heard I heard from uh, people from people in the know, that you gave a talk that was great uh, and and then also uh, that you decided to eat into all my time because I didn't show up and I uh, wanted to talk you to you were, about it. Because you had to take off your pants. I did have to take off my pants. I wore I wore pants – I wore jorts for my – because it was Florida, which are yes. jean shorts uh, that were cut off, very high, high thigh. Um, and. Uh, thigh. Yeah, and, and but I also wore a shirt uh, that um, was a little more presentable with a tie. Um, and uh, I, Yeah, I was told that you had to wear a tie. Uh. I was, and I listened because it was the least I could do for not uh, making the trip to, to Florida with everybody else. Yeah, so so
1: we should say that before before I went to Tampa, um, I went to Athens, Georgia, oh, right, um, and gave the Woodruff lecture. Um, and so, for those that that don't know, JG Woodruff is uh, was an old-timey um, food science guy from Georgia, a um, uh, really, really interesting guy. Um, basically did a lot of uh, research on uh, food preservation from uh, way, way back in the day. And uh, he actually I met him when I was a graduate student. He was born in 1900. And so I met him uh, in like 1984, 85. So he would have been 84, 85, and he was really old then. He lived until 1996, so he lived to be quite, quite old, and was a just a really interesting, good guy. Still sharp as a tack in 1985, and. Um, they uh, they have commemorated him there at the University of Georgia with this uh, Woodruff Lecture, and uh, and I was invited to give it this year, and it was it was a lot of fun, and it was it was a good lecture, and then we immediately went from there uh, almost immediately flew to uh, Tampa via Spirit Airlines, uh, which was exciting, never flown on Spirit Airlines before. It went it went well, it was it was successful, so that's that's good. Um, always good to have a successful flight. Yeah, uh, we almost we almost missed the flight because oh my God, Atlanta traffic, um, and then. Uh, and then we were in uh, in Tampa, Florida, where uh, where you participated virtually in a BRC. Um um, conference, uh, organized by our friend, Gordon Hayburn, And, uh, uh, uh I was a cast of, uh, a cast of, uh, ones, uh, 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 a, mo- uh, uh, a motley uh, crew, a, a motley crew. Yes. A motley crew, um, with, uh, Michelle Daniluk and yourself and Linda Harris and myself, uh, Frank Giannis spoke, uh, later in the day. So it was, it was, a, it was a good, it was a good conference. Very good conference.
0: I heard it like, and, and this is not me. Um, telling stories like our friends said that it was it was good i actually heard from from two other people who were there that didn't know this whole thing was going down the way it went down meaning um our our good friend gordon hayburn uh bringing in his friends to put on a symposium uh heard that it was really good like like and that your talk was really good and i heard linda's talk like actually uh, you know not uh not blowing smoke as they say uh, but it, it sounded like it was, it was good. And I, and I, so I participated virtually and I, um, I've, I've mentioned this a little bit on the podcast and I, I've, uh, talked to our, our good friend, Gordon Habern. I've, I've been like really, uh, trying to prioritize my travel and time and i I've, I've bailed. I actually had four things last week, four talks that I had said yes to in some facet cause I'm not really good at saying no to, mm-hmm. and then I went back and said no to them. Wow. And then got people there or didn't get people there um, based on what or I showed up virtually. So anyway, uh, but um, so so a few weeks ago when Gordon and I were going back and forth about how this would all work, um, he uh, he said, I said, you know, do you want me to like could what I what I first did was said, could Don just give my talk (laughs) without talking to you, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, uh, Gordon said, no. Don can't give your talk. Uh, no, he said, I'm sure the, the esteemed Dr. Schaffner would do fine, um, but could we get you here virtually? Um, you know, Could you do a video? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we set up WebEx. The Cisco group um, does this free thing, and it actually worked fantastically from my side of things. We didn't mess around with technology at all. I just shared a screen. I dialed in uh, through the intertubes uh, to this uh to this thing. And, uh, Gordon, I think plugged in the, uh, computer to the sound system and my little floating head was on one corner of the screen. And then my slides were in the center and I just talked through it. And I tell you, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but it is so much more difficult for me to give a talk with no audience than it is to give a talk with an audience. Cause I just, you know, tell jokes for the most part and I can't tell if people can't, are not yeah. yeah
1: can't hear the reaction. Yeah. It's no. it it is really it is it is a it is a hard thing to be able to do and uh one of the things that I and and it's even harder I think because we could see you, right? So yeah. in other words, um but you couldn't could and I guess you could sort of hear us a little bit.
0: And I right. could, all I could really hear was I think the um microphone on the laptop that they're using. So yeah. so like the very like not like our setup that we have for a podcast where we've got you know, one mic and and uh, it, and I wasn't getting like ambient, and I couldn't tell how big the room was, but I could hear Gordon very close to the microphone, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and and that was it. So I couldn't hear any. Yeah, I couldn't hear anything beyond that. No, no applause. So I just assumed there was none. No laughs. I su- I assumed the entire time that there was none. Um, and so I just kept going. It's, t- it's, it's hard, right? Yeah. Well, and the other thing
1: too is that often when you're presenting in real life, you are standing. Yes. Often when you are presenting via a webinar or, or something you're sitting. And so it, it changes your energy. It changes your body language. Um, I, uh, I have found one of the things that I like to do when I'm doing that is to try to be able to stand up. So at least, at least you're a little bit more animated when you're, when you're delivering the information. Right. Um, um, but, uh, but obviously, and it was a little, it was weird too, because we could see you with your full podcasting uh, get up, right? We could see you with your headphones on and I think we could see the microphone. Um, and it's a very, it, it is just very, <clears throat> it is a very weird thing to be presenting to a bunch of people. And, and actually the talk was good and you made a lot of good points and the slides were, the slides were good and interesting, but it is, I mean, you know, we we talk about technology and how technology is going to change things. And I'm a big believer in webinars and I've been promoting webinars through IAFP and through other means I think they're great but they are never going to replace an in-person talk uh, I mean there's just always going to be a need for that need to talk to people in, in in real life right in in the room I mean webinars are great right and they have a place but but it's never going to at least not without some really funky VR technology where it looks like you're actually there you know
0: yeah and it's and, and you being able to get the feedback from the audience. Is, right, is that that other piece? I it is. Um, it I've come to realize that it's a totally different skill set, right? Like like mm-hmm. giving a talk in in thirty minutes or forty five minutes or or whatever whatever time you have when you can, um, y- you don't even have to roam the room. All the, like sometimes I I like to cross back and forth and I do different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, depending on who the audience is and what the setup is and and what I find is less distracting for me and them and whatever. Um, but giving an online webinar, and this was a different one as well, where you could see my face. It wasn't just like words over PowerPoint slides. It, it really is a, a truly different skill set. Like just to be able to get through the first two or three minutes of talking into the the nether or either mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. it, and it's different from you and I talking because you and I we have a conversation when we do this. Right. I, I don't need to see you. I don't have slides. It, 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 well, plus plus we've been doing it for almost a hundred episodes, that's right? True. So
1: we we have a sense of the other person's rhythm. We have a sense of okay, so here's where we are in the timing, and this is going to go. With these, it's a much shorter amount of time. You don't have that interaction, and you really don't necessarily know how it's going to go. And you, it really is. I think it's harder. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's not harder to do. It's harder to do a good job. I think than an in person um, uh, talk.
0: I I agree, and I think that there are. People that give really good in-person talks that don't give really good virtual talks. And I think I'm like, that's probably me right now. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's the other way around where there are others who are really um, in tune to, okay, I'm going to give a 20-second, a, a not 20-second, like a two-minute blurb, and then I'm going to move on. And it's, and it's really a whole bunch of little messages in a short amount of time. Like that's what I was trying to think about when I was building that talk. Because it's really a series of YouTube videos, and and I think there are people that are really good at that that aren't really good in person, and, and it's the, those those two like so presenting is not one big Venn diagram that we all fit into perfectly. Like there are just different like this is a whole different type of media um, that takes a different skill set. Like someone who is teaching, I, I just talked to um, Carol Wallace, one of our colleagues. Um, at the University of Central Lancashire. So she and I had a little Skype talk this morning about some stuff that we're going to do together. And she she runs this distance-only um, food safety master's degree where where I've, sat, I've, I've, I've been part of her classes, and it, it is a whole different... Like, she has a, a different skill set than I do on how do you engage with students who some of them you can see and some of them you can't see and know what their timing is Um, in a in a lecture over 45 minutes or an hour and do it engagingly week after week and that that's a whole I mean it's just it's just different it's not like I I don't know I feel like you and I um, we give we give good talks in person because we do a lot of it maybe I just don't do enough of that virtual stuff to to develop those skills. Yeah, it is definitely a special skill. And you know, it's
1: fascinating to hear that they're doing an online masters because as we've we've heard from listeners of this podcast, in mm-hmm. fact, you know, if you if you uh, run an online master's in food safety. You should sponsor this podcast because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I've had a number of people um, now, and now you mentioning what Carol's doing, I had no idea. This this, And again, well, and part of it maybe is because I'm food science <clears throat> graduate program director now, and we do offer uh, a, a sort of a quasi distance learning uh, graduate degree here at Rutgers, but it's not online. And it really does require you for the most part to be um, um, present in New Jersey, at least at least some of the time, right? So, but this whole idea of of getting an, a master's degree in food safety and doing it online is something that I wish we were better at, at at Rutgers because I think we're missing the boat, right? There's 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 Michigan State, Johns Hopkins has one on um, uh, food safety regulations or food safety policy, policy uh, right? Right. right. Um, and then uh, there's something at K State. Yep. Um, uh And then and that's about and then now this thing at uh, at Central Lancaster, in the UK that, that Carol's involved with. So, I mean, these things are starting to happen. I think that they are. De- there's definitely a need out there. So people that have a bachelor's degree in something, probably not food science, that have found themselves in food safety, and we're only going to see more of this with, with FISMA and food safety regulations coming. And you need to get – you need to be at a little bit higher level in the game and, and a master's, especially a non-thesis master's that you can take online while you keep your regular job. I think there's just a tremendous need for this. But, but yeah, it's, it's hard to – it's it's a, it's a, it's a hard skill. I mean, and this is, we're just talking about the delivering a lecture, right? We're not even talking about how do you set up a course. And I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, this is, this is something that is, is, is potentially very difficult to do.
0: Well, and it's, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. It's not just, you know, the, the lecture piece, it's the entire learning environment because, you know, for, for those of us in the academic world who have taught courses before the lecture part, you know, for I'll, I'll speak from from my experience is largely the easy part, right? Because I can go and talk about whatever, and I have a pretty good background in what you know. I know what the learning objectives are going to be for that lecture. So now I'm taking that and putting it into a totally different type of media where I don't get a lot of instant feedback. I can't look at the students' faces and say, are they getting it? Can I, you know, try and engage them and ask questions? And, and Carol, it's it's kind of a it's a really cool program. I, I've been I've guest lectured in this uh, in her. Her program when I was uh, when I visited with her, um, you know, just you know randomly it's like not like you have to be there to to guest lecture, but a few years ago and, and they have an, a nice technology setup, but there's a whole like you know learning environment, assignments, um, student discussion, like all the other things that make schooling beneficial, right? Like it, it, that that you now have to to um, think about how the how the learners are using it and and the benefits of doing something synchronous versus asynchronous. And I mean, it's just a, it, it, it's a, it's a huge need and it's, and it's something, and it's actually, I want to get into this um, a little bit when we talk about, well, let's talk about it now. Um, the, the group that you and I are part of with the food safety preventive controls Alliance. It, it's another thing that I don't think we've grasped, right? Like being able to do that kind of learning in a, distance kind of place, like, or kind of concept, right? Like, we we need to have um, so many businesses have qualified individuals um, to make food safety plans to be in compliance with the the Food Safety Modernization Act preventive controls rule, but we really don't have enough instructors, and, and it's hard to think about taking individuals out of their Daily job for three days to do this, and I don't think I don't think the alliance is, has really figured out how to do it in a in a way that that allows for um, effective training, right? And this is you know this is where where I think we have to go, but it like you know like like we've been talking about it's it's a different skill set and it's not it's uncomfortable um, for some of the traditional folks, and I think it's been you know in some of the conversations I think it's uncomfortable the concept for those who are in the the alliance to even explore how to do this um so i don't know what are your what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah, I th- I, th- I think it's it's not it's not easy, and in fact, we're sort of dipping our toe in a little bit, um, <clears throat> because I've been uh, uh, you know I do a lot of work with our Office of Continuing Professional Education workshops and short courses and such, and they've um, are very interested in, do- in get in doing more stuff online, and one of the things that they want to do online or they want to investigate is a better process control school, and and uh, you know uh, um, UC Davis has had a uh, online better process. control Control School for a number of years, organized by Diane Davis with Diane's retirement. uh, Linda Harris is going to uh, take over that. And so... You know, the, then there's a question of well, okay, so how did they do that, and what are they willing to share, and you know, because because and often these better process control schools are real moneymakers for for people. Um, but Linda has quite graciously agreed to talk with the the, the person that our continuing ed office has hired, um, and this is a person who is going to basically spearhead their online course development. Um, um, but but it's really um, and it's something that I think a lot of academics traditionally it's just not wanted to be a part of because it really it does require a, it, it it's way more work than you think right and it, it and and when i think about it i think it's going to be a lot of work and i'm sure it's actually more more work than i can even imagine um and so yeah but but it's definitely the the way of the future the, this, the question is how do we how do we get there right how do we get there in a way that um that that really works for both the students and the faculty and and i i don't know i, I uh, if, in another life if i had uh, didn't have the job that i had uh, i have uh, i would be very interested in that but it's uh, it's the kind of thing i know that if i got involved in it it would be all consuming and I, I wouldn't have time to do all the other things that i do because i would be just focusing on okay how do we deliver a quality educational experience via um, via the computer but it's not it doesn't just happen by accident and it does require uh, you know, real, real dedicated um, people that understand the technology and who understand teaching and probably who understand the subject matter to some extent. And that might all be the same person. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's uh, it's one of those things that I just haven't gotten involved with because it's I just don't I just know it could be all consuming, you know?
0: Yeah. And and it's needed. Right. Like, I think that's right. that, that's the that's the hard part. And I, I'm know I'm, I'm the same way. Like, I, I'm very I'm interested in it, and I'll, you know, I'll let you in on some of the conversation that I had with Carol this morning. It wasn't in the preventive controls or training industry side of things. Like She's got this very successful program, and I want to learn more about the skills to develop that so I can then do a better job um, supporting not just the um, extension agents here in North Carolina with ongoing learning and training, but also look at expanding that to something sort of Nationally, because there are extension agents all over the place that do food safety things that that I think are sometimes just like taking messages from USDA and putting it out there. And I think we we have a way to to like if we could provide better skill set within that group via distance education, we should be able to make better you know impacts in in in. Uh, consumers and and with industries and whatever across the, across the U S. So I'm like really interested in like, how did you, how did you do it? Like, I mean, building that and how do you become good at develop, like making these courses and engaging people from, you know, from wherever, because we, you know, that, that's our limiting, that's, that's our limiting factor in the, in the reaction of making food safer is getting the expertise and compelling people to, to change behavior. And if we can use, you know, um, smartphones and let's not call them smartphones, let's call them what they are, iPhones, um, and, and iPads, um, to, to do that and, and create this learning environment that's, that's all there. We got, I mean, I just feel like we have to explore that. Um, because the, but, but it's, it's different, right? Like that's, that's the thing that, that I struggle with is you can't just, Throw a switch and be like, okay, well, I'm doing distance education right now. Yeah, it's it's a much more planned process and a different skill set.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's it's interesting times. Interesting times.
0: It is. We got to figure it out, Don. Not you and I, but others do. Mm-hmm. And, and it, um, Doug and I from the famed uh, Barf Blog, uh, Doug Powell. Um, he and I had talked years ago about a um, a uh, MOOC. I think it's called. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. an offensive term. Mm-hmm. Or not, Or but uh, the uh, massive open online courses around food safety and it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's not just, it's not just a series of lectures. Like that's not what an online course is. It's how do we use this environment to, to allow people who are interested in food safety to jump in and jump out whenever they want and get something out of it. Um, but really um, move, move learning ahead. Um, so, so I don't know. Anyway, that's what, like, I mean, coming back to what we talked about in, um, in, in, at the BRC conference and um, the, you know, the, the flavor of, of my talk was really about, okay, we do education, we do training, and, and that all supports food safety culture, but we can't just think about it as training and effectiveness. It's got to be, we have to think about more um, holistically and, and how, do we change, how do we change behaviors, which is also something that, um, that I, I see more and more. I think that the conversations are much better. In, in our sector, both with regulators and with the industry, but but it's still, um, uh, I don't know, the, people still, still default to, okay, well, let's train people. Let's train them up, but let's train them up good. Let's give them some more education. Um, and so just moving that that um, that philosophy forward is, is what I was trying to, to get across. And I don't know, I mean, who is, who is there? Like, who is in the room with you guys for this? <laughs> Um, that's a very good question. It was basically a lot of
1: people that are, you know, that you would, well, it's the, you know, and, and part of it too, for me was a real learning experience, learning about what is the BRC, right? And what is, and and you, and if you're, if you're involved in this food safety acronym, soup, uh, you know, GFSI, BRC, et cetera, um, Just learning about what is it to have to be uh, to be uh, BRC certified. So it really was a lot of people that were interested in um, um, safety from an auditing and certification perspective. And so um, and that's part of why um uh gordon wanted me to be there was to talk about you know the sort of the uh, the hazard-based thinking that's Mm -hmm. happened in the past and move towards risk-based thinking and a lot of i think a lot of our auditing still does happen to be hazard-based a lot as we've talked about before on the podcast a lot of our auditing that we've done uh, in the past doesn't seem to improve food safety right because uh, people can be audited and they can pass their audits and yet then the next week go on and cause a- an outbreak and so it was people interested in in that world right the world of making things safe through uh, through auditing and there were some really good really good really good questions really good um, uh, discussion in the room but it was again it was people in the food industry uh, people who are were consultants to the industry people who are active in the industry Industry trying to uh, trying to make uh, make food safe, um, but yeah, it was it was our it was it was I would say probably not too dissimilar from the audience that you would see. At an IAFP, mm. um, and or also probably more more in line with, uh, f- like say the food safety summit kind of audience, right? So the people out there that are that are doing uh, trying to do food safety, trying to 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 sell safe food, trying to sell services into that industry. So that w- it was I'd say the, the probably the the typical the typical audience for a meeting
0: like that. Okay, good. So. I, I went um, to GFSI uh, twice. I guess I went once when it was in London. This is back, back before we even had the podcast. I think because it was uh, maybe t- early or yeah I don't know 2010. And I gave a talk. Um, there you know, GFSI had a had a different flavor of people. Like it just seemed to be not just they weren't the the food safety operational folks that we would typically see they, they seem to be like higher in the organizational structure and and I, I you know doug doug actually wrote about this on the uh on the blog a couple weeks ago but i i went and talked about info sheets and telling stories and something about um hand washing signs and you wrote this really great paper with with dane um last year about uh, evaluating hand washing signs and and so the, the The thing that I remember saying was, you know, hand washing signs might not be effective. Like if we look at what the literature says on um, on training and education and then risk behaviors and risk communication, those things don't line up. like telling somebody having this sign up there doesn't make people wash their hands more. Um, and so this this individual who I you know later found out was like, an, an the you know COO of a, of a retail store in Europe said so are you telling me that I need to take down all my hand washing signs I'm like I, I know. And, you know so I re- answered the question of saying no but I'm telling you that they might not be doing what you think they're doing which is making people wash their hands and, and I got this like I don't know and it, may, it might just be my um, reading into the situation incorrectly but I got this like disapproving look like oh this person doesn't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> like, from like, oh, well, I'm, I I need to put up these hand-washing signs because the regulatory world tells me I need to put them up. So I'm going to put them up. And I was like, yeah, I, I, you know, so we had this like back and forth, but I, I guess it wasn't, it was, it wasn't the people that were around food safety that were in the room. It was the people that were involved in running the business and food safety was part of that. And the people that were involved in working with the, you know, board of directors and the investors, and telling people what a great job they were doing at food safety, but not really the person who was on who was knew about what was happening on the ground, which is just putting up a hand washing sign doesn't make people wash their hands, right? So, so right. yeah, so I was I was um, interested to hear if that was the same type of audience, but it sounds like no, it was, it was more operational, like the people that were really there looking at what are. What are people doing now? Maybe they they don't have the hazard versus risk stuff um, figured out, but they were the people that were really there. Yeah, like,
1: yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it might. It might be the people that think that putting up a sign makes things safe. So, yeah, I don't know. It's It's a good question. I'm really it was my first time. in uh, in, in giving a talk to that audience. And again, you know, you give a talk to 100 people and then like three people come up and say, hey, I really liked your talk. Does that mean that the other 200 something <laughs> did talk, yeah. right? <laughs> I don't I don't know, but the people that did say, "Hey, I really liked your talk and I have a copy of your slides." Um they seemed genuinely interested and they seemed genuinely. And, and the questions after were, you know, were were great, right? Like really good uh really good questions, really good interaction. The the, the q and A. I I think the Q&A sessions uh, cuz we did have some Q&A sessions, um they were really good. So the, the audience was definitely engaged and they were You know, I guess I would say based on my recollection of the questions that these were people that were for the most part were were engaged and did and did want to learn. But, yeah, I don't know. It's the, the split of people that that. You know, would would absolutely question the statement um, that a handwashing sign does not improve handwashing versus people that would sort of nod and say, "Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not. It's not just about the sign. I mean, yes, we got to have the signs, but right. it's not just about the signs. It's really about what do we do, because we know that the sign's not magic, right? It, and we know that behavior change is tough. And how do we get people to do the right thing? And there were there were good discussions and 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 questions around that. And and Frank uh, Giannis, who you know, well known speaker on the topic of food safety culture. I think he gave a really good really good talk and there was good there was good Q&A after his talk as well about, you know, well, it's food safety cultures. It's easy to talk about, but it's a lot harder to actually do.
0: Yeah. Right, right. That's I mean, that's the ah, Frank. It's like sums it up, right? Hmm? <laughs> like one sentence. It's really easy to talk about, we can put these things in place. Everyone can put up the the standards. We can get the risks right. And and we still it's still really hard to do. Like I mean, the, and, and and I think the like I, I hope this came across in, in my talk. I think the education world and the psychology world has been talking about that exact thing for like a hundred years and publishing about it. And, and we are now in the food safety realm. We're like, yeah, we got to figure it out. And. We've got it all under control, and and we're going to change the food safety culture, and um, and everything is great. But it's we there's so much that we that we're not good at doing, and changing behaviors and actually doing it is one of them. Exactly. Oh man. Um. Hey. So. So I want to switch gears up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um. I sent you that this is your you got a cold. This is a, a cold message. You don't know this is coming. Okay. Well, you do, if you checked your email in the last like 40 minutes, you do. But <laughs> I, but I sent you. Um, a message, uh, from uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Sent, 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 sent.
1: Yeah, just just so you know, Ben, I do not read my email during the podcast.
0: Whatever. So try- uh, that's
1: I can't I, I won't say that for every other time I'm on the on the phone or on the skype yeah. but, uh, but with you Ben you have my full attention
0: well I, I sent you an email because I wanted to talk about this and I'm gonna read it it's from a it's from a journalist I'm not gonna he you know he doesn't know I'm gonna talk about it and, and I mm-hmm. want to get your your sense on it so anyway this is the message um, but, hi Ben I'm currently working on a story that looks at the question of whether, ethnic restaurants and food establishments are unfairly criticized as being, quote, less safe. I'm seeing that a lot of existing research seems to indicate ethnic restaurants are often more prone to code violations and more often linked to outbreaks. However, I wonder if there's still someone to a white majority dining audience's fear of the, quote, other, meaning that we're more likely to report foodborne illnesses from something we ate in an ethnic restaurant. So these restaurants are inspected more often and are more harshly as a result. Um, also, it seems to me that many ethnic restaurants have a kill step and are less reliant on riskier ingredients like greens and other fresh produce than a lot of restaurants that have a more health safety halo around them. Um, and, you know, Then he goes on to say, would you be interested in talking with me for this? If not, I welcome your recommendations. That's a really good question. It's a really good question. And you know what I said? If you read up the, you email. Said, uh, I'm not the right expert. I'm really not the right expert. And so, and 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 I, I put him in contact with uh, uh, someone who I don't know, but I read a paper a while ago, um, uh, who's at uh, Florida State University, um, and her name is uh, Kimberly Harris, and I don't know, um, you know. She's a corresponding author on on this paper that was published in the International Journal of Hospitality Management, and this is really the only this and. Uh, Some of the stuff that um, uh, Jennifer Quinlan at Drexel has done Mm -hmm. looking at uh, GIS, mapping Mm -hmm. and food safety um, inspections, looking at urban centers in Philadelphia versus other things is really the only stuff I know that's that's out there. Um, And I I really kind of bailed on this because I don't I it it was it's I think it's a fantastic question The 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 specific question on. Um, whether certain restaurants are targeted or more prone I don't know. I, what I could answer uh, was what the risk factors are and what's seen in those inspections but the underlying are they looked at more is it a keener eye or a different kind of eye are people more likely to um, to report foodborne illness because they're not as familiar with the um, with, with the cuisine I don't I mean I just I don't know I don't know anything about it and I don't I mean my guess is that that's sort of outside of what you do as well. But I think it's really like, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. So what, so what, you know, I, I put um, him in contact with, um, with, with Kimberly Harris and, and they found some interesting stuff um, and I'll, I'll read from um, their, uh, their abstract that it was hypothesized that ethnic operated restaurants um, composed of people from different cultural norms, would result in significantly higher rates of critical regulatory violations. And their results confirmed that. And what they did is they reviewed um, uh, really health inspection um, results. Um, and so they looked at uh, selected cities um, and looked at uh, data that they could find from the West, Midwest, East, South, and uh, you know Southern places. And, and basically looked at, the the health inspections and said yes, the number of um, restaurants and the number of inspections were um, were significant and I, I mean I think it's an interesting conversation. So anyway, it was you know, I, I I called. I cold sent you this, but what do you what mm-hmm. do you what do you think about this? These questions? Well,
1: yeah, and actually, this this actually ties back into some some comments that I made uh, in Tampa, right? And so, of course, anytime anybody talks about uh, restaurant inspections, um, immediately my mind uh, goes to uh, Petran et al. A Journal yes. of Food Protection article from 2012, which we will again link to as we've done many times in the past, um, and say, okay, let's not focus on whether it's an ethnic restaurant first or not, right, because that that definition may be be challenging to even define. But let's look at what criteria in an inspection would be more likely to be associated with an outbreak. And then from that, let's look at, um, uh, you know, whether ethnic restaurants are more or less likely. And so, obviously, we know and yes, and certainly uh, cultural norms may play a role, but on the other hand, uh, you know it, it's a little more complicated than that. We know that Chinese restaurants who make fried rice from rice that's kept at room temperature have a risk of Bacillus cereus. You know that's that's an, a well-established uh, uh, problem. But um, other than that, I don't I don't know um, whether whether there is or not. And again, I, I think I haven't uh, haven't read this, this article yet, but I would say let's, let's sort of proceed carefully. And, and because, so in other words, you, you want to make sure, again, it's, it's all about the denominators as we've talked about before on the podcast. It's like, well, okay, you can say an ethnic restaurant is maybe more risky, but you have to look at, okay, but what's the starting portfolio of risk? In other words, if you, a coffee shop. Right. Is not an ethnic restaurant, but guess what—a coffee shop or a, a, a you know a, a donut shop is not going to be risky because all of the foods are are, are are they're just not risky foods by nature of what they are, you know. So so you have to um, you have to be very very careful about what comparisons you make, right? So and and so so how do you define ethnic restaurant? How do you define a non-ethnic restaurant? Um, and you want to make sure that because because let's say a Waffle House is not the same as an Outback State. Steakhouse is not the same as a uh, mom and pop steakhouse versus a mom and pop uh, coffee shop, right? Uh, or or a waffle you know waffle house equivalent. And so you it, there's just a tremendous potential, I think, to not do a fair comparison. So I and again, I would say I would I would rather look at what the criteria are. And the link the link back to the Tampa conference was, you know, in terms of auditing, what can we do to make audits more risk based? Which was the entire you know basically context of my talk or the entire point of my talk. And my my question is, well, could you do a similar analysis to the Petran article for audits and say, okay, so what audit criteria are more likely to be associated with outbreak food processing plants, right? And then let's Weight those criteria more highly, or let's change the audit so that we are focusing on things that are really more focused on on food safety. So um, again, it's it's an interesting question. It's a good question, but if there's only one article out there in the literature, I would be I would be a little bit suspect. Um, and again, I would want to make sure that it's really a fair comparison, right? So, uh, yeah, so it's good, good, good question. Um, I, I do, I put it on my list of things to do to get, uh, da- download a copy of this, uh, this article and to read it.
0: It's really, it's, it's a good, it, yeah. I mean, it's a good discussion to have, and it comes down into the, like, exactly where you went with it on, um, how you define, um, you know, ethnicity status and, right. and what are the, what are the risk factors? And in this, you know, I'll give you a little heads up from this paper they they looked at um three they divided restaurants um easily identified as ethnic operated into hispanic asian or italian based on inspection reports and inspectors knowledge of the operations in the ethnic category and so they excluded american chain restaurants like olive garden taco bell and macaroni grill i mean this is straight out of the paper um i find that italian is really like interesting right because The Italian – I don't know. It's an Italian-American style food. It's – I don't know. I have trouble with this whole thing. I have trouble with it because I think it – I think like when we had a discussion a while back about um, farmer's markets and the farmer's market, uh, the uh, white paper that was uh, talked about in the New York Times and I can't remember who the – uh, author of that article was, but we'll link to it back in, in show notes as soon as we can find it. Um, where looking for sort of correlations and the definitions that may or may not have anything to do with the risk factors starts putting us into weird areas. And it's like, and this is a um, like this uh, International Journal of Hospitality Management, this is looking at it from a, uh, economics type person standpoint. So I, I you know, the, the biggest question is whether, which is not answered here, and it's not really uh, asked by the by the journalist for me is whether there are certain risk factors that are more likely to occur at different types of ethnic restaurants, right? Like, it's not As soon as we sell we start defining what an ethnic restaurant is and going backwards from it and saying okay Let's look at these and let's look. We have the risk factors But we've already predefined what our what our restaurants are. We're not we're not in the in the realm of being like we've already We've already kind of biased what we're doing and they're able to find I mean in this paper that yeah these those three types of restaurants that they defined as um, easily uh, easily identified as ethnic Operated Hispanic, Asian, and Italian did receive more inspections than other uh, restaurants. That was significant, and I, I just I don't know. Maybe it's maybe if you looked at um, restaurants that had more risk factors, would also come back as more likely. You know, they're they're comparing. It's it, it it. You know, I don't want to get too cyclical about it, but we don't know what the denominator is and whether coffee shops are ethnic or not. Yeah. Well, you know, and you know I, yeah, and and
1: I mean, with all due respect to, well, the the International Journal of Hospitality Management, and the uh, the Dedman School of Hospitality, um, you know, these are not food safety people. These are not food microbiology people. This is not a, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the you know, and not to be a snob about it, I don't know what the impact factor of the journal is. Uh, you know, so you know, what's the, what's the, the quality of the peer review. And again, let's, you know, are there other papers, you know, I, I don't know. I'd, uh, yeah. let's just say I'm, I'm, I'm never, I am never willing to, to stake anything on a single study, even a single study that I've done. Right. 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 Because, because I could have missed something and, and it, it definitely warrants further, further discussion.
0: Yeah. It's a, but coming back to it, it's an interesting, it's a good question,
1: oh it's a great question yeah
0: um and and it so so let me let me pose a, something to you on this so mm. let's let's say that there's more than one study let's say there's um this this question that the uh journalist is asking um has has merit its evidence based support and says, you know what ethnic restaurants are um Signif- treated significantly different when it comes to inspection, thus putting them into um, more likely to have r- you know, risk factor violations. Let's 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 make a jump of assumptions that having more inspections means you're going to have more violations seen. Uh, what do you like? So I mean, the the answer of well, what do you do, and so what uh, comes to comes to mind? It's like okay, so do what is that what does that mean? I guess. Right, and, and I I can't get my head around what it means, and I think it's because I'm lost in all I really care about are risk factors overall, and if there's one sector of the industry that gets more attention, I don't know if that I don't know if it matters. And, well, and and I, I I
1: don't think we we have to be very careful about talking about that they get more inspections. Well. Why do they get more inspections, right? Is that just a preconceived notion on the part of the inspector? Are they getting more inspections because they're failing inspections and so they're getting more re-inspections? Are they getting more conditionally satisfactories so that they're getting more re-inspections? Are they getting more inspections because they are a higher risk? you know, and that's, are they getting more inspections because it's they're, they're closer to the office and it's easier for the inspector to go there? Um, you know, are they getting more inspections because it's easier for the inspector to ding them because they know these ethnic restaurants probably, you know, have illegal workers and they're not going to rock the boat or complain and they're going to just pay the fines? I mean, you know, it's – yeah. yeah you' really you really have to get very, very clear about the data and the quality of the data and make sure that you're asking the right question. it's it's science, right? you have to you have to do the controls. I mean, this is something we hammer home with my graduate students and the work in the lab is like what are your control experiments? Well, for this kind of research, which is you know survey and data mining, you you have to have that same, uh, that same, You have to take that same amount of care to say, okay, so where are, where are the controls that you're running to ensure that you really do have good quality data and that you're asking the right questions and that you're not fooling yourself? Um, you know, that's what science is about, right? It's about, it's about running those controls so that you don't fool yourself into believing something is true when in fact it's not true.
0: And, and maybe I'm not like I, I don't think I'm being clear with what the question that I'm asking on this. Mm-hmm. Not to you, just in uh, like throwing it out there. Maybe there is, and you, I mean you you hit it. Maybe it is significant because there are just more risk factors, and the type like if we compared um, these ethnic restaurants to complicated. Non-ethnic restaurants that maybe there isn't more significant, maybe that's not significant. It's because we're we're comparing it to the pool of all inspections that it looks like these types of businesses might receive more inspections. Like we haven't answered that piece by the data that they, like the analysis that they did. did right, they, right. So that that's the that's the piece that um, you, you know maybe this is. It has nothing to do with ethnicity, and this sh- is showing that in the this sub sample of restaurants that that these groups are more likely to be part of a risk based inspection process. Like that 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 process is working. I don't know. Yeah, well, and
1: and you know, and as I think about it, it's not even the right question to ask. Right? The question is should should inspection resources be allocated according to risk? The answer is yes, yeah. Yeah. right? And so then the question is, what are the risk factors in restaurants? And then restaurants that have that tick off more of these risk factor boxes, it's again, it's back to the, uh, it's back to the, the audits question from the BRC conference, right? It's like, well, so what are what is a risky food processing plant right and what is a risky restaurant and then risky restaurants by virtue of their menu should receive more inspections that's that's the i mean the, the it's asking a question about ethnic restaurants is it's it's nonsensical what is it what does that even mean right yeah. it's yes. it's it's not even the right question yeah right it, it's not even the right question it yeah it just yeah yeah not even the right question
0: and and so what you know what i think they what i think this paper did was they they went and got as much inspection data as they could Mm -hmm. and then they extrapolated that and said okay well here are our definitions for what an ethnic restaurant restaurant is and what an ethnic restaurant isn't and we're going to see if these two groups differ in the number of inspections and the risk factors, the, the critical violations—we won't even call them risk factors—that are seen, but then it, it it says you know it kind of extrapolates to that to saying there are implications of that, like maybe that food is unsafe, or maybe it's not, or maybe they're you know they're um, focused on more um, because of the ethnicity, or maybe it's not. Like I mean, all those other questions that you questions you just listed. Are, are yeah? Are I mean, asking this question allows us to ask all those other questions and maybe redefine re- um, this study. But it doesn't. It doesn't tell us. And this is why I, I bailed on the uh, the inspection. Is because I'm like I don't know. I mean, the stuff you're asking about is not really how we look at things. It's are there risk factors, and are there not? And and yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Right. Right. And if you are going to do this kind of research, a better question would be not, is it an ethnic restaurant or not? And this, and this reminds me of the data that I analyzed for uh, the SNET folks on, on cooling. They have a one, I mean, it's really labor intensive to collect this data, but so, and you're not going to get it from, from data mining inspection reports, but they ask questions like, what is the language of the manager? and what is the language of the workers in the kitchen and and, or how many different languages are spoken in the kitchen. That's a much better question, right? Because now that's something you can measure objectively. And what it says is if the manager speaks one language and the workers speak another language, um, then you're gonna have to approach training differently because of a language barrier. It has nothing to do with the cuisine of the food, right? right? It's really about what is the culture going on in that kitchen and the same question would apply um, in a food processing plant, right? It's it's not it's not whether you're making tacos or, or or burritos. It's it's is the language of the line worker Spanish, and is the manager you know bilingual, right? It's it's not it's not the, it's not the food that it's not the it's not the ethnicity of the food that you're worried about. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's right.
1: it's the language spoken in the kitchen or in in the on the processing plant floor. That's the important question.
0: In and we and we know from lots of other stuff out there that one inspection is not and and Ru, you know Ruth's stuff was was great for this even though there she was looking at it in sort of one location where they, where she was able to control for inspection um, criteria and inspection system consistency in this study they're looking at you know. A whole data from all over the place, where we have different food codes, we have different inspectors, we have different standardization process for those inspectors, and it's really hard to put all those things together, like and say, "Yep, we see one one thing here." And and, and I come back to one of the um, the comments that I've made, um, and uh, sort of multiple times when people have given me data to look at, and it's usually journalists that say, "Here's a whole bunch of stuff." that comes from different health departments or different states. You know, in our state, we have a rule of no bare hand contact. In other states, um, that rule doesn't exist. So just by the very factor that the standard is different, you're gonna see no bare hand contact violations in North Carolina more than you are in, say, and I think uh, I may get this wrong, but let's just say it's Virginia that, that says you're allowed to um, you know, touch foods with bare hands with clean hands. You know, they're just, I mean, there isn't a no bare hand contact violation there. So obviously we're going to, if we have one, we're always going to have more than than you would in, in another state that allows for that with the standard. And so it doesn't right. really control for that.
1: Right. Uh, hey, since, since I'm talking about this SNET data, it reminds me of something that was on the list to talk about today, which yes. is a, a paper um, uh, entitled Retail Deli Slicer Cleaning Frequency Six Select Sites United States 2012, which as much as I uh, dearly love Laura Green Brown that is a horrible title for a paper <laughs> It's really a bad title but it, I'm sure, anyway. it's, it sure um, it's because
0: it's been like uh, cleansed and scrubbed. yes it is it is
1: a government approved title yeah um, just like a government approved podcast uh, not uh, never never to be uh, never to be actually uh, uh, consumed by a human um, so but it's a good it's a really good study um, and so uh, it's talking about uh, cleaning of retail deli slicers we know that Listeria uh, is a potential cross-contamination risk, thanks to risk assessments and, and various things. Um, and I I do, I do, so as much as I hate the title, I really love the way they've written the summary, right? Because the summary for this article, it says, what do we already know? Yeah. What does this report add, and then what are the implications? And, and so I will read to you from what is added by this report. It says in about half the retail delis studied in in this in this report, slicers were fully disassembled, cleaned, and sanitized less frequently than the minimum four hours specified in the food code. That's okay. Whatever people people don't follow the rules. I that, that's not really a surprise, but. The, the, the second part is yes. really interesting. Slicers were fully cleaned more frequently in chain delis, okay? In delis with more customers, that's interesting and has risk implications. In delis that had more slicers, now that's a little counterintuitive, but I think also interesting. Not surprisingly, delis were more fully cleaned in in operations that required manager food safety training In operations that required food safety knowledgeable workers, in facilities that had written slicer cleaning policies, and in uh, delis that had food safety certified managers. Yes. So, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily go ultimately to risk because I guess what I would always ask, being the contrarian, uh, Sob that I am. Um, who said four hours, and why is four hours the right number of hours? Right. I right, mean, right, why right. not? Why? Because three hours would be better still, and five hours would be not as good. But what is the right number of hours? And for, you know, we'd have to look at the FDA uh, retail deli listeria slicing risk assessment to really answer that question. But again, uh, really a, a nice a nice piece piece of work, and and congrats to Laura and her team for for publishing it.
0: I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I blogged about this almost immediately after it came out. I loved, um, I love the uh, the study, and I think it goes with um, another piece of research that you and I had talked about before from uh, Courtney Simmons uh, at Purdue and Haley Oliver, um, looking at food contact surfaces in uh, retail delis and harboring uh, Listeria, and so the, you know, the, the question of, of four hours or not, I mean, it's a regulatory question, right? So it's like, are people in or out of compliance with the, with the regs? Eh, About half or not, but that, so what this said to me, um, is, is that if I want, if I'm in a business and I want to have, um, someone most in compliant with the regs, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm a person like, um, you know, like, uh, uh let's let's list off all of our uh, all of our retail friends you know there's a lot, I'm a person like Larry Cole um who I'm sure will be love that we talked about him in the podcast um i you know i i want to ha- have a situation i'm more likely to have clean slicers if i have high turnover of you know product more customers lots of slicers i, ha- I require food safety training i have um workers that know what they're doing. I have written policies, uh, and that I have managers, um, uh, you know, th- th- that are, that are in that deli, like that, that are certified. So all of those things I can, it's like a checklist of things that it doesn't ensure that I'm making safer food, but I know from this data, at least in 2012, I was more likely to have, uh, to be in compliance with what the, with what the rule said and that, or with the, you know, the, the uh, as they say, perfectly in here, the um, specifications of the food code because it's not essentially a rule until uh, it's, right. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's good. It's so uh, you know I think that our our friends that we know in lots of chains they they already do that they already are part of that and that that's the things that they're working on. But conversely, if I'm running a small town, uh, independent high end. Um, you know, deli that I'm really want, you know, I need to think about all of these things that are more likely to have my, my folks be in compliance with the, with the rule. So I automatically don't meet this chain deli, but I want, maybe um, I should have uh, required food safety training for these managers and have those managers um, in, in delis and other categories and have training for my employees because there is a difference in, the self-reported behaviors. Um, I pulled out another kind of interesting uh, piece from this, um, and it was that um, uh, the, the and I, I wrote a little bit about this, but the even the self-reporting was pretty, was, was surprisingly low because this, you know, there's kind of an interesting methodology was call up these, managers, um, and, and, interview them. And even the folks that, um, you know, they, they only reported, uh, you know, half the managers, 49.5% said that the slicers were cleaned every four hours. So we've got the folks that are in charge, asking them a question, even that, that self reporting was, um, was low, I guess, to me. And mm-hmm. like, I would have guessed that they would have said, yeah, we, we, like, It takes their their knowledge of the rule that, yes, I'm supposed to clean it every four hours. And then if someone asks you how often do you clean it, you report more than four hours because you know what the rule is, even though you might not do that. So I I thought the self-reporting was even lower. So that, to me, like maybe we're even less than that if we looked at the observed pieces.
1: Yeah. Uh, Um, Yeah. Yeah. And interesting. Very interesting.
0: It was great, but a great paper. And and it it shows – it made me lament how slow our process is.
1: The, the food code process?
0: Uh, no, the research process. Oh, the research. Well. And the yeah. publishing pro- process. And, and the C- and, and, you know, why there's such a bad title is because of the CDC and it takes a while to get this right. And I understand all of the reasons why it's slow and I'm super slow. But w- this tells us what the world looked like in 2012. Right. Right. And that is like. Trying to figure out what it looks like, you know, light years away in another universe or solar system or whatever, right? Like, like we're constantly looking back. Maybe not another universe. Um, we're looking back at what it used to be, and maybe this is different in two thousand and sixteen for outside reasons. Maybe the industry has actually moved this needle much uh, further than what it looked like in two thousand twelve. Although. This 2012 piece of information is the best we have. Like this is what we, you know, this is great, and and it we need to do this faster.
1: Right, right. Well, speaking speaking of faster, um, I have a hard out uh, at the top of the hour. Oh, Um, there we go. uh, And also speaking of the food code. We should talk a little bit about uh, that we're going to get to hang out. Um, we're going we're to hang out um, this week in Washington, D.C. Or, or in uh, Arlington, Virginia, just outside. I think it's Arlington, just outside Washington, D.C. And then um, I'm going to, to Denver. You're going home. And then we're both going to Boise. We're going to
0: Boise. That's like Jersey with an accent. Yeah, we're going yes. to go to the conference for food protection. We uh, talked a little bit about this uh, last time, but it's going to be exciting to see each other. Um, I'm going to be, I'm like a full-fledged member of a council. I don't know how. I think think it's because I'm a, like, you and I are both alternates, and they picked me because I think I'm a pushover. And you might be more of a hard ass.
1: Well, this. and I think I think I'm uh, I'm also kind of on their um, uh, on their bad list. Oh, because they put me too. they put me on a council two years ago. It wasn't the council that I wanted, and then I ended up not going to the meeting, not because they didn't put me on the council, <laughs> but because I had to go to an IAP Europe meeting because I was an officer. So yeah, I think I might be on their bad list, but I'm, it's okay. I, I, it's it's fine. We got to – let the let the young let the young kids have their day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm probably on their bad list too because I am not good at running um, committees or committee meetings or making reports. All the important things that people do in um, like formal process processes, like Conference for Food Protection. But anyway, they asked me to join the council. So, but I have a I got a, a, a conundrum that I wanted to ask you about Uh-oh. that I was going to do an after dark, but it's not like an after dark specific thing. Okay. So I'm supposed to um, present an issue, the first issue for Council Two. I am supposed to be on. I am on Council Three. I feel like I and, and my um, co or my vice chair or co chair of my committee is not going to be at CFP. What do, What should I do? Like, how do, oh, I, do uh, I? You You just tell them. And then and, and then and then and then they'll, they'll don't worry about
1: it. Okay. Uh, that's why we have alternates, right? So somebody who is an alternate in um, uh, Council Three, like me, for example. Right. You will um, I could sit in your spot and pretend to be you while you go present this other thing. And then, so, then I just come back. And you come back, and then you tap me on the shoulder, and I'm out. And we take it, Okay. Well, so I'm going to do so that. It's, it works. So it, it totally it, it really works surprisingly well. And okay. then I would just say when you can alert alert the leadership of both Council two and Council three that, hey, this is a thing. And everybody knows they got to do this. So I, it's, it happens all the time.
0: I alerted the leadership of Council two of this already. And, and I explored whether my co-chair could be there. And he's not even going to he's not going to be at the meeting. So I yeah. was like, oh, maybe he can present it, and then he's not going to be there. So I'm gonna. No, no, show. you just present it, and then you'll and then be
1: recused back. from Council Three, and then uh, it's, and then it's fine. Come
0: back, okay, good. Yeah. Well, that was good. That was easy. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I got I got three issues that I gotta, um, you know, do a good job talking about, and then, uh, um, our our good friend and, and collaborator Leanne Jacobs, just emailed me while we were talking because I do check my email when I'm on the, uh, uh, on the podcast because sometimes you just go on and on and take my time like you did at the BRC meeting. Uh,
1: yeah, it's not true, Ben. So it's angry. not true. This so is, angry. this is your spreading falsehoods. I know
0: it's true. <laughs> um, I, the falsehoods part. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, um, we're, I, I'm going to, uh, uh, present this, uh, this thing about cleaning up vomit and, uh, Leanne needs like a little couple of sentences on how it'll be done. And she's got to update the executive board on Wednesday. Nice. Of, yeah. course. So we did. So I feel like we did something like there was some science, that was created that we've now proposed that a rule be changed or, or guidance or suggestions, or whatever the right term in the code is. And I like that. I'm, I feel, and who knows, um, whether it'll get changed. And you know what I'll count as a win, on mm. if for both of my issues that are changing mine, that, you know, whatever people that have, have been part of this with me too, our issues that we present, if, if one, like, Industry member comes up and goes, You know what? I know that's not going to make it in the food code, but we are going to explore changing this within our standard operating procedures. That means we made an impact. This was like an idea that wasn't on someone's radar, and they're going to change it. I like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah,
1: well, and in fact, this was the whole theme of my wood lecture was talking about the work that we did uh, with Jetra Restaurant Depot about mm-hmm. time out of temperature control um, and, uh, you know, and and critiquing the food code and and modifications to the emergency um, uh, guidance to help when when power goes out in emergencies. And, and yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, I did I did good because I, I put some science out into the world and people are going to change what they do. And if it doesn't make it into the code, you know, that's OK. It's it is what it is.
0: It is what it is, and we uh, we still we go try it again next time. Yep. Oh, and then also,
1: speaking of which, I, speaking of, of which, I'm actually gonna I got a conference call later today um, with my my friends at Jetro Restaurant Depot because one of the things that that happened uh, since the last time we podcasted was the FSMA transportation rule came out, and there is in fact in the FISMA transportation rule there is an actually an exemption uh, for essentially the people that are Jetro customers. That is, the FDA has explicitly exempted um, people that are regulated under the food code um, from compliance with, uh, transportation rules.
0: So, Oh, well, there you go. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, let's, uh, let's respect your heart out and, uh, and call this a show. All right. Um, so, uh, thanks everyone for uh, tuning in, listening to our uh, podcast and, uh, we'll be, we'll be back at it again next time. Uh, food safety talk. This is, uh, the Gretzky episode, right? This is food safety talk 99. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> it's, there you go. Uh, and, uh, um, so, yeah, Don, thanks, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was an interesting one.
0: Yeah, that was good. I, this, the, like, I, I went back and thought about the the um, ethnic restaurants thing, and I was like, you mm-hmm. oh, know, this is a good discussion to have with Don. And I didn't actually didn't send him your way mainly because I thought you would be like the same way that I was like, I don't. think yeah. You're asking. No, no questions. I, I think you, I, yeah,
1: I, no, I think I think you did you did the the right thing by sending him to that Florida. Yeah. person. And I'd be interested to see what the what the story looks like.
0: Yeah, it should come out soon, so we can. You know, we'll we'll I'll blog about it for sure. Um. Hey, so no, no pressure on you, but I believe that episode. Oh no, it's on yep. you. It's on you. Yep.
1: And I was gonna, I was gonna try to get it done, and I didn't, but I did get my taxes done. Taxes are um, good. I, so, I I still yeah. haven't done that. But. And 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 also, no one hacked my social security number this year, so that's Yay. good.
0: Yay! Yeah.
1: A, that's a so I actually submitted my taxes and F, and FTA and
0: and the IRS uh, <laughs> FDA accepted them too, I suppose. but But uh,
1: uh, IRS accepted them, and so that's that's good news. That means uh, that uh, I didn't get hacked. So
0: good. I have to complete my taxes this week because. Our, our, mine, mines are, mine are like maybe less complicated. Like I really have like four things that I have to put in. Um, oh, you
1: know, it's it's funny. My, I did my uh, my son's taxes too because he's living with us and it was just it was just easier. Um, and uh, it turns out his was not more complicated than mine. But if he he basically was a student and he didn't he didn't work um, and so he had uh, zero income. But you cannot file electronically if you have zero. You can't file the ten forty EZ if you have zero. Uh, income. Uh, and so I had to go back. So either and it wasn't really clear from the IRS website. Welcome to. IRS talk. Um, it wasn't clear from the IRS website what to do, uh, but the tur- I use TurboTax, and so from the TurboTax website, it turns out if you have a zero income on your 1040EZ, you can't file electronically. So what I did was I just went in, and, and he, he actually gets a little bit of interest income from his bank, and so we declared one dollar worth of interest income, and then and then boom goes right through. Done it. easy.
0: Yeah. So it's what bit. they call a hack, man. Good job. Hack. That's a life hack. It's a life hack. Do you know if you leave your uh, dishes in the sink overnight with a little bit of soap? Uh, makes it easier to wash
1: them, huh? <laughs> wow, so cleans dishes. Life hack.
0: Heard, heard that from Life Hacker. <laughs> heard that. Well, and then from you. I mean, from you about. And the- Merlin. And Merlin. Uh, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's good. Um, cool. It's so funny. I mean, this is gonna sound dumb, but actually getting things off of our list, like getting things done in the um, David Allen Co. world, mm-hmm. um, makes it so I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not. I don't have anxiety about the 28th. Because there's nothing on that day, but we also are going to have the other ones done. I'm like ready to go. Let's do another. Let's record another episode. When we had like five that we didn't have posted, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's going to be six that we don't have posted. Is that weird? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So, yep. so good job. Good job us moving forward because it um, makes it so uh, I have less mental block.
1: Yes. I, it's, yeah, it's amazing that, that we could do a whole show on, uh, we should <laughs> on do pro- mental, mental blocks.
0: We should, we should do a productivity show. Do they have those on the podcast? Anybody do those? I don't,
1: I don't uh, think that. There's one, there's one that used to be about productivity, but I think it's mostly just about, like, comics and movies
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also fun. Uh, yeah. uh, hey, and then and, and hacking your media. And hacking your – so cord, cord cutting. Cord cutting. Hey, I, um, I know you have to go. I listened to Serial, the podcast. Uh-huh. Did I tell you this? No. I think... So I listened to it, like, since the la- Like, I listened to all of it since mm-hmm. the last podcast we recorded. And, um, like, I started it on Wednesday the 30th. And it's, like, the first season is really good. And I'll tell you mm. what, what's awesome, that we don't do in the same way because we're not, like, trying to do this. It's just a, a really good storytelling yes. process and i like admire like i i just i liked it kind of like when i read hunter s thompson prose i admired mm-hmm. it for the art of storytelling as yes. much as for the story itself and i liked it, yes. it was really good oh, so check okay. it out just from All my right. it's an investment in time because it's 10 hours but mm-hmm. the storytelling is really good
1: okay thank you for the recommendation
0: you're welcome and uh everyone else said that it's amazing too so uh so you're i don't know well i mean, anything that
1: gets people listening to podcasts i'm in favor of you. yeah
0: exactly Okay. Um, All right. Well, we're set. Uh, I'm going to go. I got to go eat some lunch, and then I'm going to go to a meeting, and then I got to go finish some work.
1: Sounds good. I'm going to go eat some lunch really quick and then get on the phone.
0: Have fun with your lunch and get on the phone.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.